But it was after a wonderful day of celebrating with this body of believers and a glorious wedding. And uh, I, was, I was brought into heaven through the ministry of that wedding and the joy of the reception and the celebration. And so I feel very, very grateful to be out here with my family. Thank you so much for welcoming, welcoming us so warmly. And uh, it is a joy to share the word with you um, this morning. And my prayer is that God will use it to encourage you. I've heard enough about this congregation that I know that you are a, um, a kingdom-minded body of believers and that you have a heart for the nations. And so what I want to do today is to take a, um, a little-known portion of Scripture and to use it to encourage you to press on in what you're doing in both sending of missionaries as well as some of you going. And some of you have gone and are are here in furlough or whatever. And I just pray that God will use his word this morning to encourage all of us. On page 203 of the World Christian Encyclopedia, big book like this, Um, there is a picture of 6,215 believers from the Kachin people of northern Burma. Now it's called Myanmar. Um, They're being baptized. 6,215 people being baptized in December of 1977. Just a little picture, but it's an amazing picture. And as they are being baptized, there's an additional 100,000 Kachin that are watching the baptism. And this has been said to be the largest baptism in the history of the church. And what's even more amazing to me is that our home church, Bethlehem Baptist Church, has played a role in that. And God is always doing more than we realize. He's doing that right now through this congregation. He's doing more than you realize when his word goes out. You don't know all that he's doing. And we, we had become unacquainted with the story of the Kachin people. About 25 years ago, 1990, I was in the morning service. And uh, Julie, my wife, and I were on one end of the, the sanctuaries after the service and we were greeting people, and, and uh, we noticed on the other end of the sanctuary there was this couple, and they were silhouetted against a stained, one of our old stained glass windows in our old sanctuary, and, uh, and it was obvious that they weren't wearing uh, Western clothes. So we assumed they were international students, so Julie and I kind of made our way over to greet them, and we got there, and it wasn't a young student couple, it was a middle-aged couple. And... Uh, I stuck my hand out and I said, Hello, I'm Pastor Tom Steller, and uh, um, who are you? And he said, my name is Ken Na, and this is my wife, Tsin. And I said, well, welcome. I said, where are you from? And he said, Myanmar. And missions pastor that I was, he could tell I wasn't exactly sure where Myanmar was. And he said, he said Burma. And I said, oh, okay, I know where Burma is. And I said, what brings you to Minneapolis? And he said, I've always wanted to come and visit my mother church. And I said, 
Well, that's cool. Um, where's that? <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, I am here. Bethlehem Baptist Church is my mother church. And I have come to tell you that your labor in the Lord has not been in vain. And my mouth kind of drops open and I said, can you tell me more? And he said, this was 1990. He said, a hundred years ago, in 1890, this congregation sent to us Ola and Minnie Hansen. Good Swedish couple. Bethlehem used to be the first Swedish Baptist church in Minneapolis. And they came to us in 1890 and... I want you to know that God used them. They spent 37 years of their life mastering the kitchen language and translating the Bible into the Old and the New Testament. In fact, to do so, they had to commit the language to writing for the first time. So you can imagine just the scholarly work as well as the, just the biblical work that they did. And, uh, and he said, I want you to know that in um, uh, that now that uh, there are probably six hundred thousand Kachin in Myanmar, and of those six hundred thousand Kachin, five hundred thousand are professing Christians, and of those five hundred thousand, two hundred fifty thousand are part of the Kachin Baptist Convention. And he said, virtually every one of them has a picture of Ola Hansen on their mantle. And I was just blown away. And uh, I had this brilliant idea. I know that, that in the hallway outside the sanctuary, we had this, these pictures of, of our old missionaries. And I said, Ken, let's, let's go out and see if he's there. So we went out into the hallway, and we're walking down, and sure enough, he, he says, oh, there he is. And I look up, and this ancient old picture, amongst other ancient old pictures, it was Ola Hansen. And... Uh, just blew us away. And uh, not too long after that, they invited me to come to Myanmar um, to celebrate with them the centennial celebration of Kachin literacy. Because when Ola Hansen went there in 1890, you've got to realize the history of this. If you know your missions history, the first missionary that was sent out from the United States of America was Adoniram Judson. Right around the year 1811 or so. And Adoniram Judson got on his boat and he went um, over to Burma, stopping in, in um, Sarampore, India on the way, greeting William Carey, the father of the modern missionary movement. And then he continues on and he goes to Rangoon, now called Yangon. And there he preached for the next 40 or 50 years, focusing primarily on the Burmese people, which were Buddhists, most of which didn't respond to the gospel. But there were some tribal groups that were listening over his shoulder. One of them was the Karen people. And, uh, and the Karen began to embrace the gospel. 1850 or so, Adoniram Judson dies. And uh, 20 years later, some of the Karen people said, we must go to the Kachin. The Kachin were the, 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 the most to use their words, the most savage tribal group in Myanmar. They were the violent ones. They were worshipers of demons and, and backward and didn't, couldn't read, couldn't write. 
And uh, the Karen people went up there with an American missionary, got there and died right away. But the Karen preached the gospel. And uh, in 1877, the first missionaries, and then after six years of preaching, 1883, um, seven were baptized. Seven Kachin believers were baptized. That's 1873, or 1883. And then seven years later, Olin Minnie Hansen show up to this brand new people group that was just beginning um, to have their hearts open to the gospel. And so um, I had a chance. They invited me to come to celebrate with them the arrival of the, of the, of the, the Bible. And they picked um, 1995 because in, in 1895... Um, was when Ola Hansen decided which script to use to commit their language to writing for the first time. The obvious choice was to use the Burmese script, which is a very um, different kind of script than we would have been used to. But as what he found out is as the Kachin read um, verses um, using the Burmese script, they read it with the Burmese accent. And they wanted them to read the Kachin way. And so they chose the Roman alphabet, which we're used to. So in 1895, that was established. And then um, after 37 years, um, in 1927, they, uh, Ola Hansen delivered the Old Testament and the New Testament translated into their language. And, uh, and so when I was there, I got there in 1995. It was the first time in 30 years that they let... Um, white faces come to one of their annual meetings and they met in Mandalay, which is a little bit south of the Kachin state. You still couldn't get up there because there's civil war and all kinds of stuff going on. We got to Mandalay and they chose that town because that's where Adoniram Judson was put in prison for his faith. And uh, I remember landing in, in uh, Yangon and um, hoping they got my facts that I was coming. Um, and uh, thankfully, there was a, a Buddhist travel agent met me in Yangon, and, and, uh, and it put me in a place to stay overnight. And then the next day, he picked me up to bring me to the next airport to fly up to Mandalay. And I said, is anybody coming? I mean, how, how many, have you heard about this? And he says, yes, this is going to be a big thing. He thinks there might be 3,000 people coming. And so I fly up to Mandalay, and uh, I get out of the airport, and uh, um, no one's there to wait to meet me. So I just kind of wonder what I'm going to do. And, and uh, I walked to the end of a gravel road, and there's a little bus stop. So I said I would just sit there. And I sat there, and pretty soon someone came up and stopped and said, uh, you Reverend Steller? Yes, you get in the car. And so I got in the car, and, and uh, we started driving to the conference site. It was just a, a bamboo village that they built for this conference site. And I said, how many people are going to come? And, he said maybe 10,000, and uh, more than they ever thought. And uh, when I got there, it turned out that there were 40,000 Kachin coming in from China and from India and all throughout Myanmar. And uh, I, I was just in, in Burma um, three weeks ago, and I asked, how many came to that celebration? And now they say 100,000. Uh, so the story is growing. I'm not sure what, but... Uh, <laughs> But anyway, um, it was an amazing thing to walk onto that conference site. And uh, Ken Naw, who had met me in my, our sanctuary in 1890, 
he got so excited. He said, Pastor Tom, you came. I'm so thankful that you came. And he just was like a little boy just jumping around and started walking through the crowd. And he said, this is Pastor Tom Steller um, from Bethlehem Baptist Church, which meant nothing to them until they said, this was a church that sent Ola Hansen. And all of a sudden people go, oh. And, uh, and so I would just walk around in this crowd. He'd introduce me to people and, and everyone wanted their picture taken. So I would just stand there and and uh, people would, would come up, they'd make two lines, and I would just smile and smile. And I mean, I was never a celebrity before in my life and never since, but uh, it, was, it was amazing um, just to see um, the impact that this couple had for the gospel. And uh, I was beginning to get nervous because there were Ola, Ola Hansen handkerchiefs and there were Ola Hansen calendars. And I said, is this some cult, you know, that they're worshiping this person, you know? And, and I asked Ken, no, I said, what's going on? He said, oh, he says, no, no, we worship Jesus Christ alone, but we do appreciate those who've come and brought us the gospel. But anyway, that began a renewed a relationship with the Kachin people that uh, has continued on since then. And uh, the reason I went back, I've probably been back you know, six, seven, eight times since then. And our worship pastor, Chuck Stedham, has been there more than a dozen times. And um, he ended up doing his PhD on, on the Kachin music. And so there's this, this renewed connection with the Kachin people. And, uh, but the reason they want us to be involved again is because um, there was this early response to the gospel. It was really a people movement to Christ. And uh, from the 1920s to 1960, the gospel just spread and spread. And but by 1960, a new regime came in. They shut up the borders, kicked all the missionaries out. And for 30 years, Burma was closed up tighter than a drum. And what's happening to the Kachin? Um, but meanwhile, the gospel is spreading and, uh, but then toward the end of this period of time, around the late 1980s, um, they began to open the borders just a little bit to let some of their leaders come out and study. And where did they come? They wanted to go, come to study in America where the missionaries came from. And so they started applying to schools and they went where the money was. And they got scholarships to the liberal schools. And so all this liberal theology began to creep in and liberation theology and all different kinds of things. And they go back and they say, this is what, this is what our missionaries taught us. And, uh, and so there became to be a great mixture. And, uh, and so when we had the chance to go back in 1990, um, they invited me up on the stage and, uh, um, and they, they, they put a... Um, they put a, a pouch over me. This is real traditional. They put a pouch over me, and, and, and they gave me a sword. And they said, the pouch is that you would keep us close to your heart, and the sword is that you would protect us. And he whispered, theologically. And so Bethlehem Baptist Church has been invited back in to the Kachin people and uh, to, to help them um, not lose their biblical foundations and restore those foundations so you could pray for us. I tell you this story just to encourage you that God is doing more than you realize. 
And one of the greatest privileges is to be a part of a church that takes the missionary calling of the church seriously. And that's why I want to bring us into this this text. Um, Let me read um, what Ola Hansen wrote. Um, in 1927, he, he brought the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, translated from Greek and Hebrew and Swedish, a little bit English, and he, and he gave it and he put it in their hands. And they received it. And, and part of the story is, and you, you can read this in Don Richardson's book called Eternity in Their Hearts, and part of the story is that um, the Kachin had a story in their culture that they originally had a book. They were animists, but they believed in a creator God. And the creator God had given them a book. And while, while they were bringing the book home to their people, the book got lost. And someday the book would be restored. And so they took that as the Bible. And so that was one reason why there was so much receptivity. And so... You can imagine the drama when he hands this book to them. And, uh, and he said, at the end of his life, he said, It is with heartfelt gratitude that I laid this work at the feet of my master. I am conscious of the defects of my work. I have tried to master Kachin and make a translation intelligible to all. Pray with us that our divine master may bless this work to the salvation of the whole Kachin race. Then Hansen gives them the book, moves back to St. Paul, Minnesota, and dies a year later, not knowing the outcome of his labor. And isn't that true for most of us? We don't know. We don't know the fruit of our labor. And so let that be a lesson to us, that just be faithful. Just be faithful. Do what God calls you to do. Plant seeds for the gospel. Share your life. Love your the body here, love those that are in your life who don't know Christ, share the gospel, and God is doing more than you realize. And this text that uh, in Third John um, is, is an amazing text. So if you turn your Bibles to Third John, verses 1 to 8, and uh, I want to read that for you. First of all, it says in, in Romans ten thirteen a very famous verse. It says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? I want to focus on this word sent. And let Third John help us to do that. Third John is just a couple pages before Revelation. So if you're having trouble finding it's the shortest book in the New Testament. And, uh, and so it's just one little skinny page um, right before the book of Revelation or shortly before the book of Revelation. And uh, let me read it for you. The Elder. So this is written now by John the Apostle. I know you're in a series on the Gospel of John. Well, this man that wrote the Gospel of John um, also wrote some letters. And uh, here he just calls himself the elder. So he's now toward the end of his life. 
could be an elder in a church, but he's probably referring to himself too just as an old man. Um, a lot of the other apostles had been mar- martyred by now, and he was the one that was going to stay and live on for a while. And so here he is, probably in Ephesus, Asia Minor, somewhere, writing this letter. And, uh, and this is what he writes. He says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness to your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Because they went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers with the truth. The main point of our passage in 3 John has to do with the ministry of sending. You can see it in verse 6 where he says, you will do well, or it says, it says, if, it says in the New King James, if you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Or probably the most literal reading is, is uh, you will do well having sent them on their way in a manner worthy of God. What I want to do with the rest of our time is to see this verse in its context, just to look at it together. And I see three categories of observations. First of all, John talks about the value of sending. Secondly, there's a mandate to send, the mandate or the command to send. And then finally, there's a manner of sending. And so I want to look at those three together with you. So first of all, the value of sending. It must be valuable because look at how happy it makes the Apostle John. So I want us to notice this. I want to try to reconstruct for you why John got so happy. First of all, John refers to Gaius as one of his children. Okay? As one of his children. He says... He says, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. So he views Gaius as one of his children. And that must mean that at some point in Gaius' life, Gaius had become associated with John. Probably not his physical child, but rather a spiritual child. Someone that he discipled. Maybe he won him to Christ. We don't know. But someone that he had invested in. And so he is excited about this Gaius. Um, Gaius was now ministering in another church, some distance from John's church. And some missionaries from John's church paid a visit to Gaius and told Gaius of their work. You can kind of see that in verse 7, where it says, you know, who, who are these brethren? You know, it says, uh, verse 3 says, I was glad when brethren came and bore witness to your truth. That is how you're working in the truth. So it's these brethren. 
um, they came and bore witness to where John was. In verse 6, it says, they bear witness to your love before the church. So these brethren that Gaius had ministered to, they come to John's church and they bear witness before the church of Gaius's love for them. And uh, who are these people? And the reason I think they're missionaries is because of verse 7. It says, they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. I think that's one of the best definitions of missionary in the New Testament. A missionary is someone who goes out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. So, we have these these missionaries, and Gaius loved them. And when the missionaries return to John's church and they testify in front of the whole church of Gaius' love for them, John, John is so excited, he has to go home and write a letter. When John hears this testimony, you can just imagine a big smile filling this old, crinkly, apostolic face. And he says, that's my Gaius. I must go home and write him a letter and encourage him. He also heard of some trouble in the church later on in the epistle. You can read about that yourself. But he wanted to encourage Gaius. So just look at how he addresses him. The elder to the beloved Gaius, beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved. John is just gushing love on Gaius. I pray that in all respects that you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. And uh, isn't that interesting? Just as your soul prospers. Have you ever thought about that? We live in a, a culture where prosperity is everything. And when we, in our culture, when we think of prosperity, we think of a life where things are going pretty well where our, our bank account is looking healthy and our retirement account is looking really good and, and we've got just the right house, we've got just the right area and, and, uh, and we're healthy and all this good stuff is happening. That's what we think of prosperity. We think of the American dream. That's what we think about. But if you've ever asked a question, what does it mean to have a prospering soul? Gaius' soul was prospering. And that just captivated me. What does it mean to have a prospering soul? Because it's possible that you can have all kinds of prosperity, but your soul can be shriveling up and just getting smaller and smaller. And uh, but Gaius had a prospering soul. So what does that mean? And, uh, and I think he paints a picture for it. He says, The prospering soul is a soul that is walking in the truth. See that in verse 3. It's a soul that is walking in the truth. Or in verse 8, it's, it's working together with the truth. So somehow the prosperity of our souls has to do with our soul's connection with that which is ultimately true. In other words, Gaius is not living a fantasy. 
He's not living the American dream. He's living in a way that fits with ultimate reality. Where God is at the center. So is your soul prospering this morning? Is my soul prospering this morning? Life is too short and eternity is too long to let our lives be consumed with the momentary pleasures and glitz of this world. So align yourself with God's purpose. Jesus said, seek first his kingdom. Everything you need will be added. But seek first his kingdom. Your soul will prosper. You can see in verse 6 that the value of sending can also be seen in the phrase, you will do well to send them. You will do well. And the word for well there carries the sense of beauty. The Greek word is kalos. It means beautifully. You'll do beautifully. There's something beautiful about sending. It's a beautiful thing to wash the feet of those who go out for the sake of the name. In Isaiah 52, 7, it says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. And if those who bring good news have beautiful feet, it's a beautiful thing for those of us who have the opportunity to wash their feet and to encourage them in whatever way is possible. One more thing about the value of sending. You'll notice in verse 8 that in God's eyes, there's no hierarchy of value with the missionary on the top and the one who sends plain second place. Sometimes we get that sense that if I'm going to be really spiritual, I'll be a missionary. That's not God's perspective. What God wants is that each of our hearts be aligned with his to win worshipers to himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's the great agenda of God. God is is going about working. He starts with Abraham and he says, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then the rest of the Bible is just this unfolding of this purpose of the gospel coming and gripping hearts and transforming people and the gospel spreading and spreading and spreading. It says the scope of the atonement in, in Revelation 5.9 is that Jesus was slain and he purchased people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So if we love the death of Jesus, we'll want to ask, what did he die for? And it says, in his dying, in his crucifixion, shedding of his precious blood, he purchased people for himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. A couple chapters later, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, the veil is kind of taken away and we get a glimpse into what the heavenly reality is going to be. And it says that there they are gathered around the the throne, worshiping people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And so let that just keep enlarging our heart, that God is in the business of winning worshipers from every tribe and tongue and people 
and nation. And in that process, that's what he's about. But how he accomplishes that is as diverse as you are diverse. So the last thing I want to do is to paint a picture and say, if, if you're really spiritual, you'll pack everything up and you'll go to the mission field. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is ask God to do a work in your heart so the, your heart beats with his and your purpose aligns with his purpose to see the gospel spread to every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And as we think about the world today, you know, I remember in the early days at Bethlehem when John Piper and I came back in 1980, um, we weren't particularly missions-minded. We weren't against missions. How can you love Jesus and be against missions? But it wasn't burning on our heart. We were in Minneapolis and, and surrounded by crime and poverty and needs and all kinds of things. You know, there's so much to do right here. And then when you think about, oh, but um, yeah, there's work around the world too, but the gospel now has gone out to all the nations of the earth. Because uh, we knew that there was a, the churches in every single country except for maybe Albania. And so it just wasn't compelling until someone pointed out to us that when you hear the word nation in the Bible, don't think a political entity. Don't think a, a landmass with a political boundary around it. You know, when we think of nation, we think of the United Nations. 193 countries are in the, hundred, in the in, in, uh, United Nations. But when God talks about nations, it's usually parallel with peoples. And so when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all the nations, what he's really talking about is not Cameroon and Liberia. He's talking about ethno-linguistic groupings of people that are defined by language and culture, not by political boundaries. And that's an important concept to get. Take, for example, Cameroon. My wife and I and um, my three children at the time had, had the opportunity to go and serve in Cameroon. And we moved there, raised funds, went there, served at a seminary there. And Cameroon is one country in the United Nations. But in God's perspective, there's at least 275 nations within that country. 275 languages in Cameroon. And each culture needs to hear the gospel in terms that they can understand. So when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all the nations, he's thinking of the Fulani, he's thinking of the, 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 the Limbe people, the Bonso people. He's thinking of the different people groups. And when you see the world through that lens, all of a sudden the missionary task becomes much more complex and all-consuming. And so in this world, um, there's probably maybe 10,000 ethno-linguistic groupings of people. Of those 10,000 groupings of people, Probably 6,000 have the gospel in their culture and the church planted in their midst doing gospel evangelism within their cultures. 
but there's probably still 4,000 ethno-linguistic groupings of people where the gospel has not yet penetrated. And so the missionary task is far from over, but it is very doable by the grace and power of God. And so there's a movement within the church today to identify these people groups and to make sure that missionaries are being sent into these people groups to share the gospel. And so what we're praying is that God will raise up an army of missionaries to go. But for those people to go, they need to be sent. They need to be sent. And then John says, he says, we have to support such people um, that we may be fellow workers with the truth. So for John, in verse 8, it's the goer and the sender are fellow workers with the truth. That's beautiful. That's the way it is. God is the one that's designed the body of Christ. And, uh, and he's not trying to accomplish this mission by guilting you to become the missionary. But rather he wants to awaken us to see that the most exciting thing in our life is to be aligned with his purpose to fill the earth with his glory as the waters cover the sea. Beginning right in our own neighborhood, right in our own family. I mean, the discipleship that's going on in your families right now is so significant. The outreach in your neighborhood is so significant. The outreach in your schools is so significant. Your workplaces, both with people that are just like you in culture, but also have your eyes wide open that God is drawing the nations together. In Minneapolis, where we are right now, God has has chosen to bring one of the most unreached people groups in the world, one of the largest unreached people groups in the world, to our doorstep. The Somali people. Somalia is a mess. If you go to Somalia, you'll probably die. And Somalians are leaving And 80,000 have moved into the Twin Cities in Minneapolis-St. Paul. And uh, in our neighborhood alone, it's 40% Muslim now. And uh, you could either say, ooh, what's going to happen to the property values? Get all worried that way. But no, if you've got kingdom eyes, you say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for moving this people group into our vicinity. And in this greater L.A. area, I mean, it's just an amazing melting pot of humanity. And so you don't have to cross salt water to be a goer. So the, the goers, some go to the ends of the earth, some go across the street. And, uh, but you're bringing the gospel. And so that's what we're praying. Um, second, we're almost done. The mandate of sending. Um, This observation is very brief. We are commanded to be senders, to be actively engaged in helping missionaries get to the field and stay in the field. It's just just commanded. In Scripture, you can see that in verse 8. It says, Therefore, since they go out for the sake of the name and they receive nothing from the Gentiles, we ought to support such ones. We ought to do it. Since they go out for the sake of the name and since they don't sell the gospel for money, therefore we ought to support them, ought to help them. 
sending missionaries is one of the oughts and shoulds of the Bible. But please, never regard the oughts and shoulds of the Bible to be legalism. Too often it hits us that way. Something's commanded. Ooh, I don't like commanded things. But if you realize who it is that's commanding you and how much he loves you and how much each of his commands is for your deepest welfare and happiness, then command me, Lord. Show me what you want me to do. Don't regard oughts and shoulds as legalistic. They can become legalistic, but don't regard them that way. As though sending missionaries will put you in a position to to earn merit badges from God. You must never think of the Christian life that way. Legalism is where you regard the commands of Scripture as a job description, telling what you must do to earn something from God. But scripture is clear that there is nothing we can do to earn God's blessings. They are freely given to us. All the commands of scripture, including the command to be a sender, should be seen as a doctor's prescription. Our our all-knowing and our all-loving Dr. Jesus, who cares about the prosperity of your soul and your deepest happiness, He knows that the only way our souls will prosper as they should is if we look beyond our own immediate interests and lift up our eyes to God's global purpose. Our hearts are made for something bigger than our own private world. It says that God has put eternity into our hearts. There's this expansiveness in our soul that makes us want to know Him, the eternal God of the universe, and makes us want our lives to count for what matters the most. God only commands what is good for us. So it's no wonder he commands us to be senders. The most exhilarating thing in life is to be a fellow worker with him in making his name known both in our neighborhoods and among the nations of the world. So the mandate of sending. Now the manner of sending. The last category of observations I want us to consider is the manner of sending. What is it? How is it done? I want to get real practical. Um, But first, I want us to look at the logic and the content of verses 6 to 8. So keep your eyes in the book for our closing minutes together. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Okay, there's there's the sending. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men, such women, that we may be fellow workers with the truth. The big answer to the question on how to send is found in verse 6. We are to send in a manner worthy of God. This is what stopped me in my tracks as a young missions pastor. I was a missions pastor at Bethlehem for 18 years. And I remember early in my missionary leadership, 
One of our missionaries said, he said, you know, there's a big difference between a church that has missionaries and a church that sends missionaries. I didn't know what he meant until I saw this text. You will do well to send them in a manner worthy of God. That is amazing. Notice the logic. Why should we send missionaries in a manner worthy of God? Verse 7. For, so look at these little words, because or for might be in your text. Look at these, these little words. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such ones. So the reason we send them in a manner worthy of God is because they go out for the sake of the name. And this is what unites the goer and the sender together. If you're going to go to the mission field, you go for the sake of the name. You go because you treasure God's name. You don't go just for the sake of adventure or or humanitarian purposes. You go for the sake of the name. That's the same reason the senders operate. We send in a manner worthy of God. Both the goers and the senders are united in their passion for the glory of God, the glory and beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're about. And so, if we love the glory of God, we're going to want to send our missionaries in a way that's going to honor him the most. And so, get practical. What does it mean to send a missionary? The word here um, occurs nine times in the New Testament. The Greek word is propempel. Nine times in the New Testament. And each one is in the context. It's like a technical term almost. It's a context of getting a Christian worker from here to here for the purpose of ministry. That's where that word just keeps cropping up. And one example of it is in Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Let's see if I can find it. Or Titus 3, verse 13. It says, Paul says to Titus, he says, Diligently help Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. And interesting? Diligently send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. To send on their way, um, that's the propempo word. To send on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. In other words, it's to be very practical. It's just to be, if they need some food, give them food. If they need a ticket to get on the boat, help them get the ticket. If they need to get their luggage to the boat, help them get the luggage to the boat. And, uh, and you can see it in, 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 in 1 John, um, verse 6, I think it is. Um, no, verse, uh, verse 5. He says, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, especially when they're strangers. So Gaius these brothers, these missionaries, guys didn't really even know them personally. But he was going to help them because they went out for the sake of the name. And John just celebrated that. And, but look what he says. You're acting faithfully in, in whatever you accomplish. I love that word, whatever. It's just, it's, just, it's just an open book. And so I think what you need to do as you relate to missionaries is just to kind of put yourself in their shoes. Like if you know someone that's preparing to go to the missionary mission field, 
Say, okay, now if I was getting ready to go, what kinds of things would make me feel helped and blessed? Well, maybe it's babysitting their kids so they can go and do their support raising. Or maybe it's um, helping them pack up their house when they're getting ready to go. Or maybe it's taking care of their, their old mom and dad when they're on the field, keeping an eye on them, mowing their lawn. Whatever it is. But it's all part of the task together. And then think of them when they're on the field. Okay, now, if, if I was on the field, you know, 7,000 miles away from my home, what would be helpful? Well, send them news. Send them emails. I had a friend of ours when we were in Cameroon, he was the sports guy. And so he kept track of all the sports teams that I loved while I was gone. And he would send me the clippings from the newspaper. This was before email. And uh, so I would get it three weeks late, of course. And uh, um, the twins were having their normal, horrible start. And so I was getting ready to go back to America and just to grieve with the twins one more year. And, and it turned out in the three weeks from the bad report to when I got back, they won 15 games in a row. And they end up winning the, Super, or the, the World Series that year. You know, so... But I had my sportscaster on my support team, and it was fantastic. You know, but just think practically, what can I do to help them? And you can just, your, your mind can just run, run wild. But it's just the orientation. We're in this together. We're fellow workers with the truth. That's what I'm trying to encourage. So you can, you can just dream about that. And uh, there's more things than you can ever do, but God has given you unique gifts, unique possibilities, and, and just use them to bless those that have gone out for the sake of the name. Let me conclude, conclude just by reading you a few things. Um, just to encourage you. And uh, I want to give you an encouragement to the goers. This is from David Livingstone. And if you remember David Livingstone, I, Dr. Livingstone, I presume, um, the missionary that got lost in Africa and someone found him and... and uh, but he became a folk hero and came back to Cambridge and everyone was exalting him as a hero and he was troubled. So this is what he said about his missionary service. He said, For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter, it is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then, with a foregoing of the common conveniences and cherries of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us and for us. I never made a sacrifice. That was David Livingstone. But now about for the senders. I want you to hear a quote from a man named J. Campbell White. He was the, <coughs> he never went to the mission field, but he saw himself as a sender and a facilitator. And he was a secretary of the layman's missionary movement. And back in 1909, 
he made this comment. He said, most people are not satisfied with the permanent output of their lives. Nothing can wholly satisfy the life of Christ within his followers except the adoption of Christ's purpose toward the world he came to redeem. Fame, pleasure, and riches are but husks and ashes in contrast with the boundless and abiding joy of working with God for the fulfillment of his eternal plans. Those who are putting everything into Christ's undertaking are getting out of its life its sweetest and most priceless rewards. One final quote. This one is from our friend Ola Hansen. And uh, (coughs) this is what he wrote at the end of his life. He says, If I were a young man and could live my life over again, remember 37 years with a kitchen, If I were a young man and could live my life over or begin my life over again, I would give my life in foreign mission service. I would ask to be sent back to the Kachin in Burma. In fact, I would like to live my whole life over again if I could be permitted to serve as a missionary among the Kachin people. It's good to listen to these old people at at the end of their lives. And it's good to listen to the old Apostle John and to watch his crinkly old apostolic face turn into a smile when he heard about his beloved child, Gaius, who was living for the truth. So may God use us in whatever way he pleases him, but may we be kingdom-minded May we have a heart for the nations and may whatever we do, whether it's here or far, may we do it for the sake of exalting Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you have revealed what you are about in this world. And it's so different than what the world tells us is most important. And so I pray, Father, that you would help us as we read through your word, that we would see more clearly your purpose to fill this earth with your glory as the waters cover the sea and your purpose to win worshipers from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And the amazing thing that you draw us out of ourselves into this glorious purpose. And then, Lord, how it is that we're to live it out, we are totally dependent on you to lead us. Help us to be content with where you put us and help us to glorify you wherever we are. And then, Father, direct our steps as we move into our futures. May you be the center. May your kingdom be our consuming passion. And may your grace be our constant nourishment and support. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.